Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is where we will be today. The title of our message is God's Grace in a World of Wickedness. God's Grace in a World of Wickedness. And I know you just sat down, but if you don't mind, stand up one more time and let's honor the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. God's Word says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord for His church today. You may be seated. Church family, we come to a passage of Scripture today that may seem as unclear as it seems clear. It may seem as complex as it seems simple. Now, when we speak of Scripture being unclear or complex, we're not saying that Scripture is faulty. We're not saying there's something wrong with Scripture. We're merely admitting that we are reading and seeking to interpret a text that was written in a different time period than the one in which we live and was written to an original audience who was different than us. Not only in culture and language, but also in their prior knowledge that they brought to the table as they, the first readers, read this passage of Scripture. In other words, the author was able to leave out details and know his readers would understand exactly what he's saying because they had this prior knowledge. Now, several thousand years later, we come to this text and we come without the context and background and prior knowledge of the original audience, which if we're honest, can make a text like this, especially verses 1 through 4, seem a bit obscure. And yet we know that this is a passage of God's Word, and thus it's a part of those, quote, sacred writings, which clearly teach us all we need to know in order to be saved. As Paul said to Timothy, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 is a part of those sacred writings to which Paul was referring. And so we come with confidence to this text, knowing that through God's Spirit we can learn and understand what it provides in pushing us towards Jesus Christ. But we also admit the difficulty of interpreting a passage like this, which means we have to also come not only with confidence in the Spirit, but also with humble hearts. Humble hearts, asking God to give us wisdom not to miss, here's my prayer for us today, not to miss the obvious in the midst of the seemingly obscure. And what seems to be obvious in these eight verses is this. Church, if not for God's grace, 
our wicked hearts would be utterly destroyed. If not for God's grace, our wicked hearts would be utterly destroyed. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis. We've seen God create a perfect world. We've seen humanity wreck God's perfect world by sinning against God. And we've seen humanity pass down this sin and this wickedness from generation to generation. And yet in the midst of it all, we continue to see God give hope. In chapter 4, we learned of God's faithfulness in a world of sin. In chapter 5, we learned of God's intervention in a world of death. And today, in the first eight verses of chapter 6, we learn of God's grace in a world of wickedness. Now, I think if we step back and take a bird's eye view of chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of chapter 6, we see this theme of sin and death and wickedness filling God's good world. And yet at the same time, we continue to see glimmers of hope rooted in God's goodness and in God's mercy and in God's sovereign plan of salvation. By the time we finish with this section highlighting the spread of sin, these are dark chapters here. By the time we finish this section highlighting the spread of sin, I think we're left with this truth just ringing clear in our ears. If not for God's grace, our wicked hearts would be utterly destroyed. But there is the grace of God. I want to share with you three truths this morning I think we learned from Genesis chapter 1, verses 6-8, through 8, which lead us to, I think, a sober awareness of the state of our hearts as humanity, a sober awareness of the punishment that we rightfully deserve, but also these truths lead us to a joyful thankfulness for the grace God chooses to show in the midst of the wickedness of our hearts. The first truth is this, The multiplication of humanity means the multiplication of wickedness. The multiplication of humanity means the multiplication of wickedness. If you multiply the number of coals in a fire, you multiply the heat of that fire. Why? Because each of these coals is hot. If you multiply the number of seeds in a garden, you multiply the number of crops at harvest time. Why is that? Because each of those seeds produce either fruit or a vegetable. Church, if you multiply humanity, you multiply wickedness. Why? Because every human heart is wicked and our wicked hearts produce wickedness. Notice chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. Now skip to verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. In the earth, multiplication of humanity, great wickedness. It's basically a summary of chapters 4 and 5. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw genealogies of people. People were multiplying, but we also saw sin filling the earth and death spreading to those sinful people. The multiplication of humanity was supposed, originally was supposed to fill the earth with worshipers of God, right? Image bearers multiplying, filling the earth with image bearers who bring great glory to God. That was God's intention in creation when He commanded the man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But because of sin, the multiplication of humanity does not mean multiplication of God-directed worship, but multiplication of God-rejecting wickedness. Should have been great worship, but instead there is great wickedness. As one writer stated, but even those areas where God's blessing operates, thinking about the 
the, the fact that they were still reproducing, which was a blessing of God. They were able to have children who were going to have children. That's a blessing of God. But even, he said, those areas where God's blessing operates become a stage for the intrusion of evil. Certainly evil has intruded into humanity. In a moment we'll see just how deep its intrusion has been. But between the, you said, Zach, you went from verse 1 to verse 5. In fact, you didn't even finish verse 1. What are we going to do with those verses in between? Well, we're going to look at them for a moment. In between the opening of verse 1 and the opening of verse 5, we have one of the more obscure passages of Scripture. We can spend a lot of time on this. I don't want to spend a a lot of time, but I do want us to look at it and make a few comments. The text says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is the passage that produces questions in our mind. Let me give you perhaps three questions that roll around in your mind as you read and hear those verses. One would be this, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God who came into the daughters of man? Question number two, what does verse three mean? Uh, This limiting of life to 120 years. And then question three, who are the Nephilim or these mighty men? Let's begin with question number one. Who are the sons of God who marry the daughters of man? Well, there's three main views. First, some say sons of God is a reference to angels who left heaven, came to earth, and married human women. We'll come back to that in a moment. Second view is some say that these sons of God were, were just mighty men, like mighty kings in this time period. And third, some say that these sons of God were the descendants of Seth. They were, they were just men, but they were from the line of Seth, and the daughters of man were from the line of Cain. Talk about that in just a moment. I'm going to go ahead and just throw out view number two. I think it, the mighty king's view, I think it has the least support. Um, So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that one. Let's go to view number three, and then I'll come back to view number one. View number three, which we could call it the non-angel view. The sons of God is not referring to angels. It's referring to humans, referring to just men. Um, It's held by some very faithful Christians. And they say that sons of God is another way of saying godly men. Where do they get that from? Well, looking at the context, chapters four and chapter five make a clear distinction between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Chapter four focused on the line of Cain. Chapter five focused on the line of Seth. And it's pretty clear, even as we we continue through scripture, but even in chapters four and five, that there's a distinction made between the line of Cain being the non-elect family and the line of Seth being the elect or the godly line, because that's the line through whom the Messiah is going to come. We spent a little bit of time talking about that when we studied chapter five. So according to this view, the sin is that the men who belong to the godly line of Seth intermarried with the women who belong to the ungodly line of Cain. I could go into more reasons about different uh, support for that, and I do think that view has some merit. It has some textual support from Scripture. But at least at this point in my study of God's Word, I'm not convinced by that view. I'm convinced by view number one, which is, we'll call it the angel view. 
which says that angels left heaven, came to earth, and had relations with human women. Let me give you a few reasons in support of that view. The phrase sons of God is used several times in the Old Testament to refer to angels. In the other places, it's not unclear as it is here. It's very clear that it has to be referring to angels in those passages. It's no, no, nothing else that it, no one else it could be referring to. So that phrase, sons of God, is used in Scripture to refer to angels. Sons of God is also kind of an awkward way just to talk about men. If the author was just referring to the descendants of Seth, there would have been more clear ways of referring to the descendants of Seth. And then the third reason in support is that this passage seems to be what Peter and Jude were looking back to when they wrote of angels sinning and not staying in their proper dwelling. And those passages, I'm not going to read them, but you can find them in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and then in Jude, verse 6. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude 6. 2 Peter and Jude are very similar books, and both of them speak very clearly of angels, using the word angels, of angels sinning against God and rebelling and God having to cast them out. And it seems that this would be the passage that they're looking back to. So those are a few reasons why I hold to the angel view. Now, there's two main objections to this view, and you may already be thinking about them. First, Jesus said in Matthew that in heaven, angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Well, that's a problem if we're saying that the angels are marrying here. But the response to that is that though Jesus says angels don't marry in heaven, which he does say that, the angels here are not in heaven. They have left heaven. They have stepped outside of their proper bounds and have come to the earth. And so it could be we could reconcile the view that these are angels with what Jesus said in Matthew by saying they have stepped outside of God's bounds. God's boundaries in heaven is for them not to marry, but here these angels have turned against God's boundaries. They've overstepped their heavenly bounds and acted contrary to God's will. So perhaps that's a response to that objection. The other objection is that if the sons of God's are, uh, sons of God, excuse me, are angels, then why does it seem that God punishes the humans? If they're the ones who overstep God's bounds, then how come it seems that the humans are the ones being um, punished? And that's actually a reason given in support of the non-angel view, that this is just referring to um, men, the descendants of Seth. Well, that's a good question. We need to have a response for it. One possible response is that we do see the angels being punished in Second Peter and Jude. So it's not the angels get off scot-free, they... they, they aren't punished. God punishes the wrong people. The angels do get punished. But we still see humans being punished. So what is the deal there? Well, we could say that God is just in punishing humanity because it appears that the human women consented in this wrongful relationship. There's absolutely nothing in this text um, that would, looking at the Hebrew language, that would lead us to believe that the angels forced themselves upon the human women. Um, there is Hebrew language that could convey that. But that language is not here. So it seems that it was consensual relationships, which means that not only were the angels wrong, but the humans were as well. And so God would have been just in punishing both the angels and also the humans. Okay. That was a very quick synopsis of identifying the sons of God in Genesis 6. And you can see it has pros and cons. Okay. Uh, every view, every view, every one of those views has pros 
scriptural support. Every one of those views has cons, things we would say, I don't know, that doesn't quite make sense. Um, But let's leave question one for a moment. Let's go to question two. What's the meaning of verse three? I should have told you to put your thinking caps on this morning, okay? Uh, There are three views of verse number three, and I'll say these more quickly than um, we answered question number one. Uh, what, what's, what's verse 3 talking about? This 120 years limiting life. Some say God is immediately limiting human life. Like from that point on, people can no longer live past the age of 120, which is very different from, go back to chapter 5, the hundreds and hundreds of years that people were living. Uh, problem with that view is that later on, people live past 120. There are people in the Bible after this, even after the flood, who live past the age of 120. So um, a second view is that That's what God meant. He's going to limit life to 120 years, but he's going to implement it gradually. There's going to be a gradual implementation. There's some merit to that. Perhaps that could be the view, um, and uh, some hold to that. The third view um, is that God's not talking about an individual's lifespan. He's talking about the time before the flood. There's only going to be 120 more years, and then I'm wiping out the planet, save for Noah and his family. So he's saying it's going to be 120 years, and then, and then that's it. Um, I think there's some good reason to believe that. It's in the context of the flood. What's coming in just a moment is his prediction, his prophecy that he is going to send uh, destruction upon the earth. Um, also, it would be similar to when Jonah goes to the Ninevites, and he says 40 days, and God's going to destroy this. This wouldn't be the only place where God gave a warning that destruction is coming. In Nineveh, it was 40 days, here 120 years. So that's a third view. Personally, I think the third view is the best interpretation, but however we interpret it, I think what is clear is that this is a punishment, it's not a blessing. It's a limitation of life, which is not good, which pushes our focus towards the main point of this passage, which is the multiplication of wickedness. Question number three. By the way, we're going to spend most of our time on truth number one today. Okay, just so you know. Um, Who are the Nephilim and mighty men of verse 4? Well, some would say that these are the offspring of the angels and the humans, if you hold to the angel view. Um, I disagree with that. Um, I might be wrong. uh, But I think that the statement, look at verse 4, that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards means that they were all, there were already Nephilim on the earth before the angels had relations with the women, and they were on the earth after that time. We learn in Numbers, which is after the flood, by the way, where everybody gets wiped out, except for Noah, who was not a Nephilim, we learn that there were Nephilim on the earth in the days of, the, of, of, of Numbers when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And these Nephilim are described there in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, um, as very large and intimidating people. They were scared of them. They kind of viewed them as giants. They, they, were, they were intimidating and large. Which leads me to believe that the Nephilim and the mighty men in chapter 6 are the same people but they are not the offspring of the angels and the daughters of men. In fact, that might be the very reason that Moses, as he's writing this, puts this information in here about the Nephilim. There's a popular belief um, among the Israelites and the people around the Israelites um, at, this t- at the time that Moses would have been writing this that the Nephilim, who were these 
large, intimidating people, that they were not fully human, that they were like angel humans. And so it made people even more scared of them. And it could be that Moses is debunking that myth by stating that while it is true that angels had relations with humans at one time, the Nephilim were not their offspring and thus should be viewed merely as humans, even if they were quite large and intimidating humans. Well then, that's enough to blow our minds for... A sermon, and specifically point number one of a sermon. Uh, Obviously, there's more that could be said. Um, This, I don't intend for what I just said to answer every single question we may have, uh, but to at least get us thinking in some right direction. Um, I at least want to give you a taste of the views there of those verses. Um, Let me say two things before we move on. First, Our interpretation of the details of these particular verses should not be points of contention among believers. In other words, we shouldn't argue about the views of this. Nobody's salvation is hinging on how we interpret the the sons of God, the 120 years, or the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Nobody's salvation is is hinging on that, okay? Um, And so we shouldn't argue about these things. Uh, Believers can hold different views, and that's fine. Um, The second thing I want to say before we move on is that we should make sure we don't miss the obvious while trying to understand the obscure. What I mean is this. The main point here is that things are not happening as they should. God's good world is becoming populated with people, but God is having to respond to this multiplication of people with a limitation of life. He's responding to this multiplication of people, which is a good thing. God is the author of life by having to limit their life. As you see, that's what wickedness does. That's what sin does in the human heart. It interrupts the blessing of God. It interrupts the life that God intends for us to have. And then God's got to respond with punishment. The good world that God made has been messed up. It has been inflicted with serious sin. And sin has its consequences. And here's what I, I want us to make sure we understand from this passage that's talking about all sorts of kind of Interesting, crazy things. Is that the days of the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and life being limited, whatever that exactly meant, and the Nephilim and the mighty men of old. So that seems very ancient and different in the time in which we live. Church, our time is no different. Our time is full of wickedness. It's full of God's creation stepping outside of their bounds. Whether that was angels or men, whoever it was stepped outside of their bounds. They did something that God intended them not, for them not to do. And so when we come to a passage like that, we can say, man, this seems, this seems like something that has nothing to do with me. But church, I just want you to know it has everything to do with us. 
No, we're not going to walk out of this room and see a Nephilim. Whatever they look like. But we are going to walk out of this room and see wickedness. Can I tell you something? We don't have to walk out of this room to see wickedness. All we got to do is look at our own hearts. All we got to do is look at things that we said yesterday. Things that we thought this morning. Perhaps even thoughts that have gone through our mind even sitting in a worship service. And realize that things haven't changed much. We live in a wicked world. But I want to tell you this. That the God who sees great wickedness is also a God who gives us much grace. He's a God of great grace. As we continue in this story, which we're going to do next week, we're going to see a God who loves us in spite of of the wickedness in our hearts. We're going to see a God who showers wicked people with grace. It doesn't mean that He ignores sin. He must deal with sin. But God, in His grace, can and has dealt with sin in a way that provides salvation for sinners. Remember I said at the beginning of this that an obscure passage of Scripture is still God's Word. And God's Word, all of it, is intended to push us towards Jesus. Remember Paul told Timothy that to, to not, not, not walk away, uh, to keep himself acquainted with those sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 is part of those sacred writings. So how in the world does this... Push us to Jesus, talking about the Nephilim and the sons of God. We can't even understand this wickedness. Multiplication of people. And then verse 5, multiplication of wickedness. And every time you open up your Bible, whether it's a really easy passage of Scripture to read or a really difficult passage of Scripture to, to read and understand, Whenever you see sin, whenever you see wickedness, whenever you see the world not being the world that God created it to be, you must run to Jesus. Because He is the answer for the problem of the wickedness of our heart. So even a passage like this is a beautiful passage because it makes us go, God, what's the answer for the wickedness in this world? We got angels leaving heaven, if that's your view, or we got the godly line intermarrying with the ungodly line, if that's your view, whatever it is, you're not happy because you're limiting life. God, is this the only thing we have? A limitation of life. And God's answer is no. In fact, I have sent my Son to give you everlasting life. I have sent my Son to give you eternal life. In fact, I limited His life on this earth by sending Him to the cross so that you could have life that is not limited, but is everlasting. And yet, praise God, Jesus' limited life on this earth and turned into eternal life as He rose up from the grave, having paid the price for our sin, 
and conquered death for you and for me. And our wickedness laid upon Him upon the cross. God showing us grace. So I just want to ask you a question this morning. What's the state of your heart? Is your heart infested with the wickedness which every human heart has? We're born with a wicked heart. Is your life not only going to be limited by physical death, but will your life be limited by a spiritual death which stretches into eternity in a place called hell? Or, or have you trusted in Jesus Christ, which this text pushes us towards? Have you trusted in Christ? to rescue you from the wickedness that we see back in Genesis chapter 6 and we see all around us today and in our hearts today? Have you trusted in Christ's answer for this great wickedness? If you haven't, my encouragement for you today is that you would believe in Jesus. So the limitation of your life is replaced with everlasting life through Jesus Christ. And if you have received this gift of salvation, I pray that your life is a shout of praise to God. (laughs) That though we are wicked and we should be limited, our lives should be limited, God has blessed you with everlasting life through Jesus. And our lives ought to be a shout of praise to our God for that hope, and that grace that He has given. Church family, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I don't know. I can't look in people's hearts. I don't have that ability. You do, though. And you know where people are at today in their walk with You. But God, I do know what Your Word says. And Your Word says that You... created a good world that has been filled with wickedness. But God, You've also told us in Your Word that Your answer is Your Son, Jesus Christ, who left heaven and came to earth to pay the price for our sin. Who, even though He had lived a perfect life and did not deserve to die, His life was limited by a death that He didn't deserve so that we could receive a salvation that we don't deserve. And God, that is your great grace. And so God, I just pray that in this moment, if there's someone who has not received Jesus Christ for salvation, God, I pray that even through a a seemingly obscure passage like Genesis 6, 1 through 4, that you would make that person wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. For he is the answer for the wickedness that plagues the hearts of every human. God, if we have trusted in Christ, those of us who have, God, I pray that we would worship You. I pray that our lives would be a declaration of praise. In everything we say, and everything we do, and all the choices that we make, a declaration of praise to You for how good You are and how much You have loved us. God, we just want to say together as a church family, thank You. Thank You. Thank you 
that you have not left us in our wickedness, but you have sent Jesus to rescue us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.